guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am okay. I have the worst headache I've had in a year, and I'm convinced it's a Sahara no. Desert thing watching it. Have you yeah. seen that? I'm like, it's a Sahara it's, des- Desert headache. <laughs> yes. It is very 2020 that we have a huge dust cloud over us right now oh um, from all, all the way from the Sahara Desert. So yeah, that's um, really something. And I didn't even know that it was a thing until just yesterday. Um, I like saw it on the news. I was like, wait, I was like, is this real? Like, this is not satire. Like, we actually no. have something like this. Going the murder on. hornets uh, have been blown away by the Sahara Desert. We're just on to a new terrible thing. So yeah. that's where we are. <laughs> well, I am sorry about your headache. And oh, I it's fine. I didn't mean to, it like that. I'll, I'll try. Just... I'll, I'll try not to be too Mandy and be too loud for you. I've got you turned down as low as you can go. I should be good. (laughs) I'm sure there's other people out there who would appreciate if I lowered my tone a little bit. So So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, All right. So we're going to get right into it. Um, If you are an avid true crime fan, you may have recently heard about suburban housewife Elizabeth or Betty Broderick. Although it's been 30 years since the crime she was involved in took place, there has been a resurgence in interest thanks to the new miniseries on USA Network called Dirty John. So I was really confused at first when I read this because I was thinking Dirty John that we all know of, but there's actually no correlation between this story and the story of Dirty John Meehan that's also widely publicized. But I guess USA decided to call their show Dirty John. Melissa actually explained all this to me and I was still confused and I still don't understand it. So the show is called Dirty John, but this season of that show is about the murder of Dan Broderick. So that is the episode that we are doing this week. So we are going to get back to that. But first, we're going to tell you a little about where this crime took place in this week's segment of We Googled This City. So we are back to San Diego. I can't remember when we were last here, so hopefully these are not repeats. But San Diego is located in southwestern California and as of the 2019 estimated census had a population of around 1.4 million residents, making it the eighth most populated city in the U.S. and the second most populated in California. San Diego actually is known for its very amazing weather, which averages around 70 degrees Fahrenheit or 21 degrees Celsius year round, which is great because if San Diego was as hot as Florida, you'd probably want to jump in a lake. But jumping in a lake is illegal in San Diego since all of their lakes are man-made, which makes the phrase go jump in a lake take on a whole new meaning. Not sure what it is, but in San Diego, it's most likely a threat. Is that a phrase that people say? Go jump in a go lake? Go jump in a lake. Yeah. Maybe oh. I watch mob shows. Well, <laughs> I feel like it's a mob thing to say. Go jump in a lake. Wait, did I make that up? No, I think I've heard of it before. <laughs> I did not write this when I had a headache, so I don't know. <laughs> I give up. Okay, so not to freak anyone out, but there are just six months left until Christmas. And that's only important because of the next fact and because I want other people to be panicked like me. Back in 1904, the Hotel Del Coronado was the first place that had an outdoor electric Christmas tree. Speaking of Christmas, and I'm sorry I brought up Christmas again, if you're listening on the day this is released, there are just 178 days left, but in San Diego, you'll be fine if you keep your Christmas lights up past February 2nd, which I think that is great. I cannot take a freaking Christmas light 
after January 2nd probably is when I get a little twitchy about it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's enough talk about Christmas. I mean, I could talk another 4,272 hours about it, but then it would be here. And then what will we do? So lastly, La Jolla. Oh, gosh. La Jolla. La, La Jolla. Jolla. La oh, Jolla. really? The <laughs> yes. next, my next option was La Jolla. And that was like the girl, Heather from Real Housewives of New York. So I'm just wrong. La, yeah. The what only- did you say it again? La Jolla. The only reason I know that is actually because my grandfather lived there for a while and I went and visited him there. So yes, I am familiar with the area. I knew the J could not be right, but I could not figure out what else it could be. And I did not look it up. So that makes sense. Whatever Mandy just said is what we're going with. (laughs) Don't write us. I know it. I'll just never get it right. So there's this community. It's a community, rather, within San Diego, and it's home to the San Diego Geisel Library at the University of California. Within its walls sits the biggest collection of original Ted Geisel materials. Ted, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss, wrote such classics as Oh, the Places You'll Go, The Lorax, and a lesser-known favorite, One Fish, Two Fish, Why Am I Still Allowed to Do This? And that's all I've got. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Okay. Betty Bichelia. By the way, that's an Italian name, and I'm not Italian. So even though I nailed that pronunciation of La Jolla, this may not be accurate. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm saying it the way that I heard on a name pronunciation website. So, Oh, those Betty- can be real spotty, though. I've had yeah. three different pronunciations on things. Good luck. Yeah. So Betty Bichelia was born on November 7th, 1947 in Eastchester, New York, which is a quiet, historic town 18 miles north of Manhattan. She was the third of six children born to devout Roman Catholic parents named Marita and Frank. Some sources claim that Betty was born into a rich family, while others say that the family was upper middle class. What we do know is that her family worked very hard to achieve a higher status through business success, education, and proper behavior. Frank was an Air Force veteran who served in World War II before eventually taking over his family's business, which was the Bichelia Plastering Corp. Frank's father founded the plastering business in 1908, and it was a successful venture that allowed the family to live a comfortable life. It is said that Marita and Frank were very strict parents. And if you have six kids, I imagine you have to be you have to have a schedule and be strict about it. I can barely maintain my two kids half the time, so I can't imagine having sex. But they they were very strict parents. And so throughout Betty's life, she really struggled with this idea that she had to be perfect As we look back, we can see that this was introduced to her at a very young age. Her parents actually taught her that her role in life was to become a good wife and mother. But overall, her childhood was very stable and centered around school and around the Catholic Church, which her family was extremely involved in. After graduating high school, Betty attended Mount St. Vincent, which is a liberal arts college in the Bronx that educated exclusively women. Betty appeared to live a very sheltered life. She never really left home until she met Daniel T. Broderick III in 1965 at the tender age of 17. Dan Broderick was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he was also from a large Catholic family, just like Betty. She had been invited to a football weekend at the University of Notre Dame, where Dan was just beginning his senior year. It was the first out-of-town trip that Betty's parents had actually ever given her permission to go on, and the trip proved to be quite eventful. Betty was an all-American beauty, while Dan was described as pale and gangly, and he was a bit shorter than Betty. However, Dan did have some good game to make up for what he lacked in looks. 
For example, when he first introduced himself to Betty at the party, he wrote his name on the napkin as Daniel T. Broderick III, MDA. When Betty asked what MDA meant, his response was medical doctor almost. Mandy said that this is adorable. Or did... I did. Okay. (laughs) I... Would have rolled my eyes, but that's just who I am as a person. It has nothing to do with what <laughs> I just he think did. It's, I think it's really clever. Yeah, I'll give it to. I mean, I do very not clever things, so I will definitely say that's clever. I'll give it to him. He can have yeah. that one. I'll give it to him. <laughs> After that first meeting, Dan told his friends that he was just certain that Betty was the woman he would marry, and he was right. Not long after, the couple began dating, and they were head over heels for each other. So they eventually were engaged. After graduating from Notre Dame, Dan was accepted into the medical school at Cornell University's Manhattan campus. This was perfect for Betty since she lived just about an hour away from there in Eastchester. During those years at Cornell, Dan spent a lot of time on the road traveling from Cornell to Betty's home to visit. It was on one of their dates in New York that Betty truly fell in love with Dan. She admitted, quote, it felt foolish, but it was like a lightning bolt, that sudden and intense, end quote. It was no surprise when they announced that they were getting married. On April 12, 1969, Betty and Dan tied the knot at Immaculate Conception Church, not very far from the home of Betty's parents. Betty's parents approved of this match, and not only was Dan assumed to be doctor with an impressive academic record, but he was also from a Catholic family, which was very important to them because they felt very strongly about their faith. The happy new couple jet-setted off to the Caribbean for an exotic honeymoon, and when they returned, Betty moved out of her childhood home and into Dan's dorm room. Of course, this wasn't really allowed because Dan lived in the single student's quarters at Cornell, but Betty was just thrilled to be living on her own with her new husband. It was the first time Betty had ever lived away from home, and her life was really changing very quickly. Just as things were settling down after the wedding and the honeymoon, Betty got some exciting but surprising news. She was pregnant and the couple surmised that they may have conceived on their honeymoon. The pregnancy was a bit of a surprise. At this time, Betty was working as a third grade teacher and already adjusting to a new life with Dan. She decided to keep her pregnancy a secret from her coworkers and superiors for several months before she actually revealed it. In January of 1970, Betty gave birth to her baby a month early. It was a little girl that the couple named Kimberly. The couple really had nothing for little Kimberly at all. They actually put her in a dresser drawer and Betty's mom had Saks Fifth Avenue deliver a few clothing essentials for the baby. And this is something you always hear like grandparents saying, like we would put the baby in a drawer and that's, you know, that's where they would sleep. But this is, I guess, the first time I've ever actually heard of someone doing it and not just like a, not saying it in like a, just like a funny way, I guess. I don't know. I guess people really did that. I- a gentleman I used to see, which sounds way fancier, but a guy I used to date, <laughs> his sister, or he and his sister both had like drawers that that's where they slept in. It was like a legit thing. And I had to like not have my eyeballs fall out whenever I heard it. I was like, oh, that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It happens. You do what you have to do. I totally get that. Yeah, definitely. Because remember, Dan was still in medical school at this time, and Betty was the main breadwinner working to support them all on a teacher's salary. And if you know anyone who's ever been through medical school, or especially if you're married to somebody you know who was going through medical school, then you know that just being in medical school is expensive beyond the cost of tuition. There's all kinds of other things that you have to pay for with exams, with travel expenses, with application fees to different things. And it really is pricey just to get a medical degree, even after you pay the the school for the education itself. 
So Betty eventually earned some extra money by caring for another couple's baby along with her newborn daughter. When Kimberly was just a few months old, Dan got his medical degree. The diploma, however, did not open the door to a better life. When Dan was about a year into his residency, he decided that he was not happy working as a physician and instead he wanted to practice law and he enrolled himself in Harvard Law School. So he's obviously very smart. He has been able to get accepted into a lot of amazing colleges and he obviously does well academically. But let me just tell you, I would probably be upset if my husband finished medical school and then said he wanted to go to law school. That would be tough. Like, buddy, we couldn't have figured this out four to six years ago. <laughs> yeah, that is that's a huge change after you've already completed so much to one degree. I mean, I guess if you if your heart's not in it, it's there's nothing you can really do about it. But man, that would be some hard news to handle. You could try and put your heart in a little bit more, I think, <laughs> at least for a couple of years. And then we'll talk about the other school. Yeah, true. So Dan's medical degree wouldn't go entirely to waste, though, because his ultimate goal was now to become a medical malpractice attorney. And his knowledge of the medical field would make him a great lawyer to fight malpractice cases. However, this is doing, as I said, two grueling fields of study back to back. And during this time, Betty was working to support the family by babysitting and going door to door selling Avon and Tupperware. And we're going to get into a lot more details of this case after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. Life is full of surprises. One minute things are going great and the next you feel like things are out of control. Your mind is all over the place and you're struggling to find balance and peace. Or maybe you have critical or urgent things going on in your life that you need to discuss with someone and just have the opportunity to let it all out. BetterHelp Online Counseling may be the solution you've been looking for. I signed up for BetterHelp a few months ago, and when I signed up, I took a short quiz to figure out what exactly I was looking for in a counselor, and I was matched right away to a therapist who I actually really enjoy talking to. My counselor is helping me work through some things I've actively been trying to avoid, and I love that I have the option to speak with her by video chat or phone calls. I personally prefer phone calls so I can look like a hot mess express while we talk, plus I can message her throughout the week to check in. She sent me articles to read and makes me feel like she's genuinely invested in the things I want to work on. Being able to speak to my counselor from my home and at times that I can make work is one of the best gifts I've been able to give to myself and honestly to my family. Everything you share with your counselor is confidential and BetterHelp can help match you with a counselor who is specialized in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, and more. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com moms. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot moms. Is there anything more exciting than seeing your friendly neighborhood postal worker walking up to your door with a package you've been on your phone tracking all day? Well, if you use the free online shopping tool, Honey, then you also saved money on your new delivery, and that makes your new purchase that much sweeter. My son has a birthday coming up, and he's currently obsessed with geography and countries. So my husband and I have been looking for geography-themed things when I found the coolest interactive globe for him at Kohl's. It was a little more than I wanted to spend, but luckily I have Honey to help me find a deal. Honey is the free browser extension that finds promo codes for you and automatically applies them to whatever is in your cart. So when I go to checkout, the Honey button dropped down and all I had to do was press apply coupons and Honey scoured the internet for all the promo codes and I saved $25 on the globe. 
Not only did I save money, I was thrilled that I didn't have to open up 30 other tabs searching for store codes that are always, always expired or not valid. Honey saves you money plus internet rage. Plus, Honey is everywhere and supports over 30,000 stores online, stores like Kohl's, Walmart, DoorDash, and more. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free money. It's literally free and installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com moms. That's joinhoney.com moms. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Betty and Dan Broderick and how they recently had their first baby. And Dan decided after graduating from school, he wanted to change directions in his studies and really start back over. So that is what's happening up until this point in the story. So despite struggling financially and having to deal with the demands of law school, Betty and Dan had four more children in quick succession. Sadly, one of the children passed away when he was just four days old. The couple lived a very modest lifestyle, to say the least. Betty continued to support her husband, knowing that life wouldn't always be this way once he graduated and began practicing law. With Dan enrolled in Harvard Law School, Betty claimed that she was living in the slums with the kids with no car while Dan was away networking with the folks at Harvard. Life was not easy, but Betty ran the household with what little they had. When Dan graduated in 1973, he got his first job offer way out in California, and the family actually moved to San Diego, which is quite a move for Manhattan. He accepted a job at Gray, Carey, Ames, and Frey, which was one of San Diego's most prestigious law firms. I feel like if you have more than like two people, you should not use all of your names. That's a lot of names for it a law It is a firm. lot of names. It is a lot of names. It is a lot for people to remember, but for a Google search, that helps a lot because if you know all four of them, you will find them immediately. <laughs> There's not going to be a lot of <laughs> options. So in California, the Brodericks found out quickly that in order to make a name for themselves, they would have to start keeping up with the Joneses. However, the family still hadn't made it yet and had to adhere to a strict budget in order to survive. One thing that many college graduates are not prepared for when they graduate is that their massive student loans need to start being paid off. This put a further financial strain on the young family. To further their bad luck, the home they were renting went up in flames and destroyed everything. Dan and Betty ended up using the insurance money they got from the accident to put a down payment on a five-bedroom home on Coral Reef Avenue. Betty worked nights as a cashier to keep the family afloat. But then in 1978, Dan decided to leave the firm he was working for and start his own one-man law practice. This ended up being a great move for him. His hard work paid off, and he made more in the first three months on his own than he would have if he had stayed at Gray, Carey, Ames, and Frey. Within a few years, the family's financial situation had really done a 180. After struggling for years while Dan obtained medical and law degrees, they were now not only living comfortably, but they were living downright luxuriously. They joined country clubs and even bought a ski condo and a boat. Dan devoted a considerable portion of his income to his wardrobe and evenings out with his fellow attorneys. This really wasn't surprising as Dan had always been a pretty snazzy dresser and he even earned the nickname Dapper Dan in college. Eventually, his expensive wardrobe was supplemented by contact lenses and a nose job. Betty claimed that by 1982, Dan was making so much money that her budget was unlimited. And that's because at the time, Dan was making up to $2 million a year. Dan continued to stay out late, but now his time was spent working at the office instead of out with his colleagues. 
In the spring of 1983, Betty and Dan were out at a cocktail party when Betty heard her husband comment to someone, quote, wow, isn't she beautiful? Obviously, in reference to another woman that was at the party. Betty was shocked to hear her husband say this, as he had never really made comments about other women before. As it turned out, the woman that Dan was admiring was 21-year-old Linda Kolkenna. Betty felt a little threatened in the moment, but she did her best to carry on with life as usual. That summer, Betty took the four kids on a camping trip throughout the western United States. Dan remained in San Diego to work while they were gone, and in that time period, he actually hired Linda Kolkenna to be his personal assistant, despite the fact that she had no skills and nothing more than a high school diploma. Linda couldn't even type, which I don't think was as big of a deal back then because probably not many people could type. Wait, no, I think actually it would be a really big deal back then because if you think in the 80s and stuff, like that's what you're getting hired on typing per minute. Like that's your that's your skill. That's like a lot of transcription, all that kind of stuff is it's a big I think it's actually a big deal, which if he hired her and she didn't have that, it would be like a huge red flag. I could be wrong, but I think that's like a time where people really wanted to be able to type. Yeah, you're probably right. I don't know anything about any time period besides this one. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I've watched a lot of shows that are based around this time. So that's where I'm getting most of my facts as per usual. So when Betty returned and found out about this, that he had hired this woman, she began to suspect that Dan was having an affair with her. And she became hysterical and gave Dan an ultimatum, which was fire Linda by October the 1st or move out. So Dan simply denied this affair and told Betty that she was crazy for thinking anything was going on. But on November 7th, 1983, Dan inexplicably missed Betty's 36th birthday party. At this point in time, Betty was highly suspicious that something was going on. She later wrote in her memoir, quote, he was making me crazy with his lies. Later that night, she attempted suicide by slitting her wrist and taking pills. Finally, Betty could no longer fool herself and decided to call one of Dan's female employees and ask her point blank if there was anything going on between her husband and Linda. The female employee obviously did not want to get involved, and she denied any knowledge of a relationship between Dan and Linda. And she also tipped Dan off to the fact that Betty was calling around and asking questions. Betty decided that since she didn't have any concrete evidence, that she would visit a therapist. She thought she must be suffering from paranoia and believed maybe therapy could help her work through it so she could get back to her life. Two weeks after Betty's birthday, it was Dan's 39th birthday. Betty wanted to surprise Dan and thought it would be a really great opportunity to start rebuilding their marriage, so she planned to show up at his office to surprise him. A friend of Betty's had mentioned that it might be a good idea to just start showing up at the office to make her wifely presence felt, and Betty agreed that it was a good idea. She arrived at Dan's office in the early afternoon with a dozen roses and a bottle of champagne ready to spend the day with Dan, only to be told by the receptionist that he and Linda had left around 11 a.m. and had yet to return. Betty was surprised, but she decided to wait, figuring they'd be back any minute. She waited until around 5 o'clock. When they still weren't back, Betty took a peek in Linda's office. That's when she saw her wedding crystal, wine, and a picture of Dan on Linda's desk. Ooh, it hit her that neither her husband nor his secretary would be coming back to the office that day. Betty immediately went home and flew into a blind rage. In front of her children, she removed Dan's clothes from his closet and set them on fire. When Dan got home, he remained calm and continued to tell his wife that she was imagining things, which probably would just be the most just incredibly irritating thing that 
he could say in that moment to her when she's already angry and suspicious. And I just feel like the audacity of saying nothing's going on when this is what just happened is just I, it's, it's gaslighting 101. <laughs> yeah, it is mind blowing to me. Very much so. So in response to Betty burning his clothes, Dan ordered all new tailor made suits for himself. And Betty claimed that his tailor loved her because, of course, yeah. she was probably keeping them in business or, you know, whatever the joke is there. What Dan didn't realize was that this was the last straw for Betty, and she really could no longer fool herself into believing that her husband was being faithful. Things were very tense between the couple from this point on. Dan continued to deny all accusations of an affair until February 29th, when he finally owned up to it. But it was not because Betty had finally broken him down. It was because now he was actually seeking a legal separation from her and he was falling in love with Linda. Weeks prior to this, a crack had actually been discovered at the family home. So Dan, Betty and their children moved into a rental while the damage was being repaired. And then after the separation, Dan actually moved back into the family home, although it wasn't complete. And he left Betty in the rental. Dan told Betty that he needed some space. He immediately began creating a new life for himself in the family's home. He actually redecorated the house while Betty and the kids were gone, which when Betty found out about that, she felt that it was a clear sign that she was no longer welcome there. And we're going to get right into what happened next after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. During the summer, we spend a lot of time outside sweating and swimming, and I also use a lot of styling products on my already colored hair. I need a clarifying shampoo for the pool, as well as a conditioner specifically for color-treated hair. And don't forget the heat I put on my baby Thin Precious Moments hair. I'm also going to need a thermal protection shampoo and volumizing shampoo for good measure. And if you're like me, you're thinking, wow, that's a lot. And it is. But what if I could have all those things in one personalized shampoo and conditioner? Thanks to Function of Beauty, I now can. Function of Beauty is not just the first ever custom hair brand. It's actually the internet's top rated customized hair brand and has over 40,000 real five-star reviews. And that number keeps increasing. It's that great. If you aren't familiar with Function of Beauty, here's what I did. I took a quick and thorough quiz and answered questions about everything from whether my hair was oily or dry, curly or straight, and what my specific needs are with my hair. Next, the Function of Beauty team reviews these answers and determines the right blend of ingredients and bottled my custom formula to order. Lastly, Function of Beauty delivered the personalized formula right to my door in a cute bottle that even had my favorite color and fragrance with my name on it. I chose their pear scent, but there are other fragrances that I can't wait to try. And if fragrance isn't for you, they also offer their products fragrance and dye free. So what are you waiting for? Go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms for 20% off and to let them know you heard about it from our show. That's functionofbeauty.com slash moms. As moms, we wear a lot of hats, like person who heats up food in the microwave or person who moves the clothes from the washer to the dryer. But one thing that's really hard about being a mom is making the time to take care of myself. Luckily, Noom makes that easy. Noom is a habit-changing solution that helps its users develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Noom only asks for 10 minutes a day, which even the lunch packer in the family can make time to do. Sometimes you just need someone on your team, and getting in shape is definitely one of those times, and Noom agrees, which is why they are so big on community. 
Whether you're doing great on your journey or you've gone off track, Noom is there to cheer you on or just to give you tips to encourage you to help you get back on track tomorrow. My goal is not a magic number on the scale, but to really be healthier overall. Sometimes I have a rough day and eat like a garbage raccoon and really just need a reboot. I love that I can reach out to my Noom specialist or Noom community, and they are always there with an encouraging word to get me over the hump and back on track. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, that's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Betty and Dan's marriage and how Betty was just learning for sure that Dan was having this affair and he learned this because he was seeking a legal separation from her. So Betty watched the house change before her very eyes when she would drop off the kids and pick up the kids for visits with Dan. That would be really hard to see. So on one visit, she noticed that there was a homemade Boston cream pie on the counter, which was Dan's favorite pie. Assuming it was made by Linda, she took the pie from the kitchen and she smeared it all over Dan's bed and clothing. She then threw a bottle of wine through the window, left an angry message on the answer machine, broke a mirror, and spray painted the walls and curtains. This is like a Carrie Underwood song. Yes. <laughs> so these types of violent outbursts were very common with Betty when she got angry. Dan told the San Diego Reader in 1988 that Betty often committed these acts with an audience. The kids would be watching and crying, begging her to stop, and Betty would say, quote, this is my house. I can come in whether you like it or not, end quote. So after this incident, Dan immediately took out a restraining order. He wanted to make sure that his estranged wife could no longer set a foot into the property where he lived. This only enraged Betty further, and her hostility towards her husband continued to grow. Betty was angry that she had spent so much of her life building Dan up into the highly successful man that he had become, while she put her own career dreams on hold to raise the kids and to put Dan through medical school and law school. She started to feel like Dan did not understand what it took to raise kids, and she wanted to get back at him. Now, this is crazy to me, but one by one, Betty began taking her children over to Dan's house and leaving them on the doorstep. Dan claimed that Betty would just leave them there with their things and wouldn't even tell him that they were there, so they're just sitting outside. Her idea with this is she wanted him to see how difficult it was to raise a family. But Dan didn't miss a beat, and he did what any working parent would do. He hired a babysitter and continued about his life and career as usual. And Betty continued to lash out in every possible way she could think of. After months of Betty repeatedly damaging the house and berating him, Dan finally filed for divorce on September 23rd, 1985. A couple of months later, during Christmas of that year, Dan and Linda took the four kids on vacation. While they were gone, Betty once again broke into the home with the intent to vandalize more of their property. On this particular trip, she ripped open the gifts under the tree that were meant for Linda, and she smashed a large mirror. This chaos caused Dan to sell the family home in 1986, and he moved Linda and his kids into a new home in one of San Diego's most beautiful neighborhoods. Dan, being the lawyer that he was, had found a loophole in the law, and he was able to sell the family home without the approval of Betty, which, of course, infuriated her. She retaliated by driving her Chevrolet van into the front of Dan's brand new home. I think that is a Carrie Underwood song. Yeah. <laughs> also, Not like one. I think it is one. I don't understand when people, I mean, you've heard of this happening before, right? Cars going through houses, yeah. usually not in an intentional way, but like 
why would you, I feel like there's such a high risk that you will be injured. Like, why would you, it just seems like such a weird thing to do. I would never intentionally crash my car into a hard wall of a home or yeah. any other thing. It just seems like too risky. If you know what I mean? If your plan is just to yeah. get back at him, like I'm not going to hurt myself in the process. Yeah. Unless you're in a three pig situation where one house could be made of straw and one could be made of right. like <laughs> sticks, you're going to be screwed in this situation. Yeah. So Dan recalled to the LA Times that he opened the door of the van to pull her out. And as he did, she reached for a large butcher knife that she had hidden under the seat of the car. Betty was immediately taken into custody and placed in a straight jacket due to her bizarre and irrational behavior. She spent three days in a local psychiatric hospital. Her breakdown did not stop Betty from harassing Dan. She would often leave belligerent phone messages that would frequently be heard by the children day and night. I actually had a chance to listen to a couple of these voicemails that she left and she really is just going off and she is calling Dan and Linda these extremely offensive names and using a lot of profanity and a lot of just mean spirited words and just not even caring that her children are hearing her talk like this and about their dad, especially it's just terribly, terribly sad and heartbreaking. A friend of mine that went through divorce, she said, I had to decide that I loved my kids more than I hated my ex-husband. And so she was like, anytime I would get heated or really ticked off about like this affair that he had had, she would say, I love my kids more. Like I I don't want to hurt them, even though I cannot stand this guy. And not saying that I don't know what I'm not in that situation, so I can't say what I would do. But I was like, that's actually that makes a lot of sense, (laughs) like to be able to pull yourself out of some of these thoughts, because it would be so hard to not be focused on this and just enraged. Yeah. So in March of 1987, Betty had a long and heartbreaking conversation with her 11 year old son, Danny. Dan actually recorded this conversation as soon as he heard Danny sobbing uncontrollably. In the conversation, Danny begs his mom to stop saying bad words. Quote, this whole thing could be settled, he tells her. This conversation goes on for 34 minutes, and it's really chilling to listen to. Betty calls her son a monster and even asks the 11-year-old boy, quote, where is the little C, referring to Linda, and quote, I wonder what her family thinks of her effing her boss who's married with four kids, end quote. Imagine saying that to your 11-year-old. That is such, like, so inappropriate, and I don't, like you said, like, I understand her anger towards Dan and and feeling like she just is so out of control yeah. with her emotions with that. But there is it's just there has to be a part of you that says like this. These are adult problems and this is not the problems right. of an 11 year old child like that. I don't need to tell him what's going on or bring him into this or make him feel yeah. bad about anything. It's just just awful that she would have this conversation with her son at all. Yeah. So this entire conversation, Danny is just begging his mom to stop being so angry and to stop saying mean things. At this point, because the couple was separated and not legally divorced, Dan had voluntarily been giving Betty an allowance of $9,000 per month. But Betty was extremely frustrated anyway, claiming in her memoir that her life was entirely on hold pending the settlement. He had possession of all of the assets, the children, the house, and even the furniture inside. The divorce process lasted for five long years. Betty claimed that she couldn't find competent legal aid due to no one wanting to go up against her husband in court, which actually that does kind of make sense. It would be hard to go up against a lawyer in court. So meanwhile, Dan was also looking for ways to get back at Betty, and he began to deduct money from her monthly support. 
He would withhold $100 for every obscene word she used, $250 for each time she set foot on his property, $500 for every entry into his house, and $1,000 for every time she took one of the children without his permission. At one point, she actually owed him $1,300. I'm surprised it wasn't more, to tell you the truth. I know, I know. (laughs) On January 20th, 1989, after eight days spent in a courtroom, the divorce was finally finalized. Although Betty sought custody of the children... Custody was ultimately awarded to Dan, and it was largely because Betty was deemed unstable based on her previous actions. The court ruled that Betty owed her husband $750,000 because of all the cash advances that he had made during the previous six years while the divorce was pending. So as a result, Betty would only receive a total cash payout of around $30,000 and a monthly stipend of $16,000. So $16,000 Seems like a lot of money monthly to most people, but Betty claimed that this barely covered her bills. I just want to know what kind of Mm. bills she had, because that's crazy to say that you can't pay your bills on $16,000 a month. So Betty was completely devastated. And, you know, as we said before, she had really supported Dan over the past 20 years, often being the sole provider in the early years of their marriage. And she always took her role as a wife and mother to heart, as she had been raised to do. Now he was in love with another woman and Betty was being brushed to the side. Things only got worse when Betty learned that Dan and Linda planned to be married. One month before the wedding, Betty bought a Smith and Wesson revolver. She claimed that now that she was a single woman, she needed protection. So she took shooting lessons and she was known to carry her gun with her at all times. On April 22nd, 1989, 10 days after what would have been Dan and Betty's 20th anniversary, Dan and Linda got married. Linda was so concerned for her husband's safety that she asked Dan to wear a bulletproof vest to the wedding, but he refused to do so. And instead, they hired undercover security guards. I can't imagine being so scared of my ex-wife that I would need to hire security guards to be at my wedding. That's that's a lot. I Yeah, I... I don't know what you even do in that situation because I there's just not a lot I am like have a lot of conflict with that I'd rather just say whatever you want. What do you want? I'll give it to you. Let's just be done with this. I don't want to deal with this. And on your wedding day to have to think of that is just insane. Yeah. So life went on for Dan and his new wife, Linda, but Betty fell into a deep depression. And this is one part of the story where I feel like I do actually have some sympathy for Betty because I cannot imagine what she kind of was going through emotionally with this, you know, with everything that she had done for her family and feeling like, you know, things are finally great now. We have a comfortable life. We're happy. And then for Dan to do this, uh, to leave her for another woman, I, as a woman and a wife and a mother, I feel like there's, there would just be no, there would just be no pain worse than that for your husband to do that to you. So I totally feel bad for her at this part of the story. But Betty actually let her bitterness fester for seven months before she decided that it was time to get revenge on Dan and Linda. One day when Betty had the kids, she secretly stole Dan's house key from her daughter with the intention of using it for a sinister purpose. At around 5 a.m. on November 5th, 1989, just two days before Betty's 42nd birthday, she used the key to let herself into Dan's home. Dan and Linda were both sound asleep in bed when Betty came into the room and shot them both. She shot Linda twice and Dan four times. They both died instantly. As soon as she had committed the murders, she went and turned herself into the police. She was taken to the Las Colinas Women's Detention Center, where she stayed for a year before it was time for her to go to trial. 
In weeks and months following the shooting, Betty would talk about Dan in the present tense as if he was still alive. A close friend of hers said she felt like Betty wasn't even accepting the reality of what she had done. But Betty was pretty busy behind bars. According to an episode of American Justice, she actually spent a lot of time in jail responding to letters she would get from the public, and she would also write to her children. But she was also very good at manipulating the story so that she seemed like the victim. Her trial for the two murders began in October of 1989. The defense wanted the jury to consider whether this was cold-blooded murder or whether Betty had been driven to kill. But the prosecution focused on proving that Betty was unhinged and had been stalking and threatening Dan and his new wife for months. Since Dan was a lawyer, he had the wherewithal to record Betty's ranting messages, and he also transcribed them. In one message played for the jury, Betty could be heard saying, quote, I have very important things to ask you. You're making me mad. I'll kill you, end quote. According to Betty's testimony, she just brought the gun to the house to, quote, make them listen, which... No, that's not really something people do. I feel like you don't go to someone's house at five in the morning with a gun and just want to have a friendly discussion. So I just think, I mean, I, like I said, I, I felt bad for her, but like, come on, some of the stuff that she did, it's just like really like, or said. And she's confronted them so many times at this point that why does she need to have a gun this time? You know, she's gone into their house several times. What's the point of the gun unless there's something you're going to do with it? Right. So she said that she hadn't actually planned on killing them. And in her testimony, she claimed quote, they moved, I moved, and it was over. She said she doesn't remember anything else. The trial was a media sensation. Betty's counsel attempted to paint her as a woman who simply snapped. However, the answering machine messages told a completely different story. Dan's housekeeper took the stand and told the court that Betty had once stated that she would put four bullets in Dan's head, one for each of his children. Sadly, Betty's own children took the stand as well. One of the key witnesses in the trial was 20-year-old Kimberly, who was the oldest child of Dan and Betty. Over two days of testimony, Kimberly told the jury about her mother's frequent fits of rage, and she said that her mom showed no remorse after killing her father. Kimberly had been estranged from her dad when he was murdered, but she still testified that her mother had repeatedly stated her desire to kill him. Betty's trial ended in a mistrial because the jury couldn't agree on whether or not Betty had premeditated the murder. She took the stand in her own defense and gave emotional testimony. She described going into Dan's bedroom and allegedly startling them as they slept. She claimed that she heard one of them say, quote, call the police, and then she just started shooting. A second trial went underway in 1991, and this time the outcome was different. At the age of 44, Betty was convicted on two counts of second-degree murder and was sentenced to 32 years to life. After the guilty verdict, Betty was incarcerated in the California Institute for Women, where she remains to this day. In 1998, Betty spoke to the San Diego Reader and said that she was having a pretty good time in prison, where she was involved in a dozen volunteer groups as well as working as a prison janitor. In January of 2010, her first request for parole was denied by the Board of Parole Hearings because she did not show remorse and did not acknowledge any wrongdoing. Two of her children spoke at her parole hearing, asking the board to release their mother. But Betty's other two children spoke against Betty, really imploring the board to keep Betty incarcerated. Betty released a memoir called Betty Broderick, Telling on Myself, that was published in 2015 
And she is actually due to be released soon in 2021. It is really sad to me that, you know, there's four kids, two testified, you know, for their mother and two testified at the parole hearings, you know, wanting the mom to stay in prison. You know, there has to be conflict within that family just based on what they believe with their mom, you know, so it's already they've lost their dad. And now the kids, I don't know what relationship they have, but you could see how that could be really tough to think. I think my mom's a murderer and you don't think our mom's a murderer. That'd be really, really hard. Yeah. I do want to check out the series though. Amanda Pete is in it, which I was telling Mandy before is like so nice for Betty, Betty Broderick because I don't understand that casting at all, but I think Amanda Pete's great and Christian Slater is in it as well. And I always get him confused with, what is it? Sheen, not Martin Sheen, not Charlie Sheen. Oh, Amelia Estevez, their brother their son brother. I get Emilio Estevez and Christian Slater confused, but he's a really good actor. So I'm interested in checking it out and seeing what that's all about. Yeah, me too. It's a, it's a definitely interesting story. So I imagine it's probably pretty good. So yeah, I will have to check that out as well. Okay. Melissa, are you ready to turn the page, go to our last thing before we go, and then you can go to bed hopefully with your headache. (laughs) Oh yeah. I'm, I'm like counting down the moments. No, I'm just kidding. I'm fine. Let's do this, but yes, let's do this. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, for this week's last thing before we go, we decided to look up some silly, uh, laws, nonsensical laws from California, since that is where we are at this week. Everybody loves hearing silly laws that, you know, that don't really make a lot of sense and you wonder how they even became a law. So we looked up a few ourselves for California and we are going to share them with you and with each other. Do you want to start it off? Sure. So the first one I have for us is that in Fresno, park visitors are not allowed to annoy any lizards that they encounter at the park. (laughs) (laughs) So kids are just not allowed is what I'm getting from that. Yeah. My kids would have a really hard time with that one. They love uh, chasing lizards and catching them and being gross boys about about it. (laughs) Exactly. I, I do not like lizards. So in Berkeley, it's illegal to whistle for a lost canary before 7 a.m. I actually appreciate that. That would be terrible to hear somebody looking for their whist- or for their canary that early in the morning. 7 a.m. and on. I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The next one I have is that animals are banned from mating publicly within 1,500 feet of a school, tavern, or place of worship. Animals. I'm honestly okay with that one. <laughs> I know. Hopefully somebody informed all the animals because that's... I uh, know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my next one is in San Francisco, any person that it's classified as being ugly may not legally walk down any street. Oh, no. Who gets to decide? How do you know? Yeah, who gets to decide? I, know. <laughs> I guess if somebody pushes you into the road, you're like, I guess that's it. Right. I've <laughs> been hit by the ugly tree. Yeah. yeah. So residents of Blythe are not allowed to wear cowboy boots unless they own two or more cows. So yeah, they're not going to have any fake cowboys in no. in that area. Yeah, that is one of mine. I was like, wait, I know this one. <laughs> That's a good one. My next one is in the city of Los Angeles. You are not allowed to hunt any moths under street lamps, which I know. What do you do for the weekend? Right. What on earth are you going to do? <laughs> we mess up some people's plans. Oh my gosh, you can't hunt them. I, I mean, I didn't under a street lamp. Yeah, I just didn't know that moth hunting was a thing anywhere. But <laughs> I guess it isn't is. there a Mothman movie? I'd probably hunt that guy, but yeah. that's just because I was scared. It's terrifying. So my last one I have is another animal one, um, and I actually like this one. Peacocks have the right of way to cross any street, including driveways, in Arcadia. So I'm 
fine with that being a law. I like peacocks and I don't mind sitting there watching them walk across the street. Wait, they're just allowed to? That's the law? They're just, they have they the right of way. Want? Yeah, they have the oh, right they have the right of way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's a little, I mean, good for them and all. Yeah, I love peacocks though. They're um, really beautiful, but also- They're slow. I mean, they are slow when they're walking, but I was going to ask you about, there's a park near where you used to live, your old house, and they have a lot mm-hmm. of peacocks there. And I think it was like a thing a couple years ago where they were like attacking people. Like they're actually not very friendly if you get too close or if they feel like you are yeah. encroaching on their territory. Like they were actually running after kids and stuff and chasing them, which is terrifying because they are big. I mean, it's not a small bird. So like that would I be know. really scary. Oh, I forgot all about that. Yeah. I think we like literally decided not to go there one day because of all the peacock attacks that have been taking yeah. place. <laughs> I forgot that. Yeah. They're big and hostile or they're beautiful and hostile. I, I can get behind that. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. All right, guys. Well, that was the show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. And we will be back next week at the same time in the same place with a new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.